0: Welcome to Great Commission Conversations, a program where we engage in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, an assistant pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. Bible believers are appropriately wary when it comes to humanitarian projects, The failed hopes of the social gospel and the gradual mission shift that happens in virtually every major parachurch and denominational humanitarian outreach only serves to reinforce our biblically informed reservations about humanitarian efforts. Strictly speaking, humanitarianism is not missions, and in many cases, a humanitarian focus can be a hindrance to the spread of the gospel. However, the objectives of biblical missions and the cause of meeting the temporal, physical needs of individuals and communities do align on occasion, and I think that's precisely the case with Baptist drillers. My guest today is missionary Jason Russell. Brother Russell has served the last 20 years in the western province of Papua New Guinea, a very remote, rural underdeveloped part of the world for sure. He went to this uttermost part of the earth as a city boy from San Diego, California, and he went to win centers, trained leaders, and established churches. He's been able to do these very things extensively over the last two decades, but in the course of his missionary service, God has committed to him some tools. We might say some humanitarian tools that have proved extremely effective in facilitating the more pressing spiritual objectives for which he and his family went to New Guinea to accomplish. With that introduction, Let's get into the conversation. Brother Russell, I want to talk to you today about Baptist Drillers and how that's opened some doors for ministry there in the western province of Papua New Guinea. But I think it's it's important, uh, however, in, in understanding what you're doing there with Baptist Drillers to lay a foundation of what you really went to New Guinea to accomplish. Uh, it wasn't primarily to um, to mill wood or to drill water bores. It was to win people and train men and start churches. So if you if you don't mind, take us back to 1998 and your first trip to, to Papua New Guinea and how the Lord burdened your heart to go there as a missionary.
1: Sure. Well, I was in high school back in. Um, well, back up a little more to 1994, we had a missionary come to our church, uh, missionary John Gray and he talked about visiting your missionaries, and that really started the, the burden. I don't know, even know if it was a burden, but the interest in my heart. Uh, I knew God had called me to preach. I didn't know where I'd be preaching. but uh, So I took that first trip uh, for two months in uh, June, July of 1994, and God used that to call me into ministry in Papua New Guinea. So wow. I then took a trip. Now as, a, as an adult, as a married man with two kids, uh, I went myself, but in in February of 1998, I did go to Papua New Guinea, and uh, missionary John Gray uh, hosted me. If if I I don't know if I'd say it like that, but uh, he picked me up from the airport, and he says, "Where would you like to go?" And I said, "Well, take me where there are no other missionaries. I want to try to be beneficial and the most useful I can be." And he says, "Well, we'll go to the Western Province." He said, "There's nobody out there. Western Province is the largest po- province in Papua New Guinea." but it is the least populated and the most sparsely populated. It's uh, like the Alaska of the tropics. I mean, it's very vast, uh, you know, villages are just spread out uh, far. For instance, I'll just give an example. In, in weeping, uh, weeping would be like the hub of a, of a wheel. There's roads that come in and out. When I say roads, I'm not talking about sealed roads, or just pathways, basically. But each village more f-
0: more for foot more for foot traffic. When you say roads, are you're you're yes. still it, still auto it, traffic?
1: It could handle a truck, a tractor, in my case, uh, but but there's like even to this day, there's like maybe one vehicle in the whole area. <laughs> okay, really? I mean everybody walks it, but it can not handle a vehicle. But each village is at least two hours to three hours walk away. Uh, the nearest one is two hours. Uh, if you go, uh, let's see, east. It's two hours that way. There's another one west, two hours that way. The other one north is three hours, and the other one south is three hours. So and it's like that all over the place. And then there's vast areas where there's nobody. So in 1998, Mister and John Gray and I flew out to Balimo, and um, just a beautiful area. It's a it's swamps. I don't know if swamps can be beautiful, but it was to me. It's just maybe like the Florida Everglades. And I had this romantic dream. That I would get a flat-bottom boat with a big propeller—not propeller, propeller, but a um, like a helicopter blade on the back of it. Can you visualize that? Oh yeah! yeah. uh, I just had this romantic dream that I'd be skimming around the floating grass and going from village to village like that. And then I woke up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Reality (laughs) dawned.
1: (laughs) Reality dawned in there, and so we did that. And you know, things are different on in the third world, number one, but then, uh, our village people are very simple people, uh, not innocent to sin, but innocent to the, to the wisdom of the world. Maybe I'll say it that way. It's just a very unique experience, like going back in time and such a great opportunity for the gospel. Uh, the people that haven't really been perverted by all the cultish doctrines out there, they're just, they're just, if you can put the word "pure" on there, pure sinners in need of a savior, without all the other complications involved, and it's just a, it was a wonderful experience. But uh, in order to fly out, we flew into to Balimo in a MAF plane, a little, I think it was a Piper, and that was exciting. But then, in order to fly out of the province, we went to Daru, and there was a small fellowship of believers already there, which is what we call today Daru Baptist Church. And uh, so we were there. We uh, were supposed to fly out, I think, on Thursday. So missionary John Gray preached on on Wednesday, but then our flight got canceled. And I was able to preach right there in Daru in February of 1998 and not knowing that I'd be returning back to those same people and uh, trying to uh, build a church uh, from that small body of believers there, Fellowship of Believers.
0: Yeah. well when you when you transition to the field of New Guinea, you it was you initially, if I recall you had your heart set on returning to Balamo and it took it took some time to to adjust to uh, the Lord's seemed seemed like he sort of hedged you in and 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 to get you to Daru. So uh, yeah, how, how did how'd that work that's sometimes can be frustrating for a for a first term missionary with, with right. big plans transitioning to a field and um, and and things not going as as planned right
1: big plans indeed characterized me i had i had buildings drawn i made you know i had buildings drawn i had landscapes all put out i had bible school buildings dormitories you know all of it i had it all ready and so i was making trips to balimo and i'd identified some land i'd actually obtained a license to occupy that portion of land but um, when i went to get it all finalized the Lands Department in Daru uh, said what I had done was illegal. And I was like, whoa. And it all went full stop right there. I found what you would think would be an enemy in the system, and he happened to be the boss. Uh, and so it wasn't going to go anywhere. At that same time, the the brother who was looking after that fellowship in Daru uh, was from Balimo. He was an older man, and he wanted to go back to Balimo. In other words, you wanted to leave Daru and go back home to, to his place. The missionary who helped uh, get the Dar Baptist Fellowship Baptist Church started, he wanted me to go to Daru. And I said, no, no, I'm going to Balimo. And I was stubborn like that a few times. And then, But in the end, uh, as you said, being hedged, I, I just couldn't get the land. And without land, what can you do? But we did have a portion of land in Daru already. And so then, then we made plans to uh, transition to Daru. Uh, we had raised money already, or saved money for a house, and so we bought all this building material and had it shipped, and uh, preparing to begin our ministry in the Western Province, right there in the capital. Which, looking back, I mean, I can see the supreme wisdom of God in not putting me in a very remote location to start with, but I needed to form these contacts in uh in that setting of the capital to get to know uh, the the heads of departments, you know, in many places in the world, and Papua New Guinea is like this. You know, unfortunately, it's not what you know, but who you know, and you you, you have to get to know these people. And I came, I was coming in like a westerner, and I said, "Well, I got, I'm going to get this land. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that." And that's when I got that full stop from that head of the lands department. Basically, he was basically he was telling me that's not how we do it here. And so. As a result of getting to Daru, we've made those contacts, uh, began to understand how the system works, the government works, and God has opened many doors as a result of that.
0: Amen. Land, land is an, is a curious issue in a place like New Guinea anyway. That, that would be probably an interesting topic of discussion. As long as you've been in the country, you probably have a, a few stories, uh, interesting stories about um uh, about taking claim to, to land and how property is understood in that part of the world, uh, without pursuing that Daru is the capital of the Western province. So when you went there full time, what year was that? And and what were the conditions like when we, when we think capital, I mean, Nashville, Tennessee, (laughs) or, or what were the conditions like in Daru?
1: So Daru is an Island. It's uh it's two miles in diameter, five square miles total. It's two miles off of the coast of the main island of New Guinea, of Papua New Guinea. Uh, but it is the government head, as you're talking about. There are, there are streets that were paved back in the late 90s or mid 90s. Uh, so there are, there are streets and corners. There's no stoplights or stop signs. There's nothing like that. Uh, very small. But we made, we made our plans. My commitment uh, with missionary John Gray was, was complete. And so we made plans to move to Daru in May of 2001. And we'd already purchased building materials and we're having it shipped in. And so I'd gone, of course, to Daru to make sure we had a place to stay while we built. And I thought we had an agreement with uh, a family to rent a, a small house. And this small house had a toilet that could flush. You know, that was important to my <laughs> That's wife. It's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But when we, landed, when we landed there in May of 2001, the men, a few of the men, uh, said, oh, missionary, sorry, that house is no good. And I'm thinking, what's no good about it? They basically had a disagreement relationally with those people, and they canceled. So now I, I arrive with my family, and now we have no place to stay. <laughs> and so I dropped my family off. Uh, at the church, which is only maybe 300 yards from the airport. All right. So we're not talking very, very far distant. We might have even walked. I don't remember. But I left my family there at the church. They were having a small uh, get together, food, you know, type of thing. And myself and the men went trying to find somewhere to stay. And we finally found somewhere that would rent to us. It was up on uh, on wood posts, basically. And it had, let's see, it had three rooms in it. It had a, a living room, which they call a lounge, a kitchen, dining room type thing, and a bedroom. The it had one running. It had one faucet in the kitchen, only cold water, uh, and uh, no toilet, no shower, no nothing else. That was it. And so the toilet was actually like an outhouse, where it was a bucket and the shower was under the same tin roof separated by one piece of tin metal. And so this was a nightmare to my wife.
0: Yeah. I can just imagine.
1: (laughs) So that's, that's kind of how we showed up and uh, it definitely put the go in my step to get that house built. I I guess so. When we started building, the first thing we completed was the toilet make sure yeah, that works. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, you, you know, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, who, who stateside doesn't take these things for granted, but there are sure. still some places around the world where these are, these are not givens. They're, they're sometimes real, uh, that present real obstacles for a family in particular, that's, that's trying to adjust to a foreign field. So you had a group of, uh, of believers that was already gathered when you got to Daru, um, Initiated, I think, by by a national New Guinean that uh, I guess went to Balimo and and you took up there in Daru. That's right. And if I recall, one uh, one of the first orders of business was establishing a Bible Institute, to which you had a quite a good response. So uh, tell us a little bit about about establishing the the Bible school there.
1: All right. So in May of two thousand one, we arrived into we into Daru and uh, started putting things together trying to teach the people that were there how to how to how to win people to Christ. We had a what I would call a big day. My background was in the bus ministry. And so we had a big day on August maybe 4th, 2001. It was called a family photo day. Had no idea this, how successful that would be. How uh, photos were so rare and everybody wanted a family photo. And so this little body of believers of 40, 45 people now, on that Sunday, we had over 400. It was phenomenal. I mean, the Sunday school lesson i had planned on teaching that day, I scrapped it and said, boy, I better preach the gospel here. So we did that, had several saved. I said all, I said all that to say, you know, the church began to grow rapidly. And so we we did begin our Bible Institute in February of 2002. School, the school system there goes from February to November uh, December type of thing. So we started school and we had 30 something students there. Uh, you know, I went wild building tables and getting chairs <laughs> and just a phenomenal experience. I have pictures of of those first days and uh, the men and women were so excited to be able to learn the Bible together. Amen.
0: Now, as you've trained as you've trained men there in the Western Province, your your approach to training these men has not been limited to classroom instruction. Obviously, that's where you impart a a good deal of doctrine, but the practical element is is a pretty impor- important aspect of your training. Some of the men that are still in the ministry today, and absolutely. I, I, if I recall, part of that has been just inviting some men um, on occasion to accompany you over the years in your itinerant efforts. And so you mentioned uh, earlier this place called Whipim, which is in the which is centrally located in the in the western province. And so I guess early on in your work in Daru, uh, you had some kind of concern or burden for Whipim, and and would take flights in there and and conduct some. Itinerant ministry, and right. have some men that accompanied you. So, how did how did Whip him come uh, on the radar for you from Daru, and uh, how did that itinerant work get get started?
1: We we all have people who influence us, and it's important who we allow to influence us. And one of the great influencers in my life was missionary Ted Mullins. Is missionary Ted Mullins, and I would make trips to where he was uh, every about once a month or so when we first got into the country. Learning uh, missionary strategy, if you would. And some of the key things, foundational things in our ministry, uh, I learned from him. And this is one of the statements he said. He said, Jason, these people are not stupid. They may be ignorant, but they're not stupid. He says they can do anything that we could do if they just had the experience that we've had. And he says our job is to give them that experience. And that was foundational in my missionary career, whatever, however you want to say that. These people can do anything that we can do. They're just lacking the experience. And so in our, in our Bible schools in Papua New Guinea, we obviously we, we, we have that classroom time, but we major on the practical, getting out and experiencing ministry, doing it together because otherwise they have no other example. Like we have in America, we may go to a preacher's meeting or a revival meeting and see different examples of ministry. Over there, all they know is you, for better, for worse. And so indeed in the Bible school, every, every month I would travel out for a week and I would take one or two of our students with me uh, on, on those trips. And not only was I learning uh, the, the practicals of life in the jungle, but they were learning the heart of their missionary. They were learning the, the uh, practical aspects of, of, uh, of preaching and just a wonderful experience. So we, we do major on the, on the practical. Here in America, most Bible school students probably have a job that they're locked into, whereas our people are, actually have quite a bit of freedom uh, because they're farmers, basically, hunters and gatherers. And so they they can schedule time to do, to do trips like this. And even to this day, we do that. So I would travel, I would fly predominantly into this grass airstrip called Weeping. And then from there, I didn't know anybody in Weeping, but from there we would walk, like I described earlier, you know, two hours to the nearest village. But for some reason, I was always walking to this other one that's six hours away. You know, I'd pass, you don't even pass through another village. You just turn right instead of go straight. And so it's six hours to the other one. And uh, we have a you know, a church there today. They, they named it themselves, Victoria Baptist Church of Ruad Village. And uh, so, yeah, a lot of walking. But every time I would fly to Weepim or fly out of Weepim, either way, sometimes I would fly into another airstrip and walk uh, to a village and then keep on walking to get to Weepim to fly out. And one day, matter of fact, I can tell you, it was in November of 2002 that I kind of had this light bulb go off in my head to say, Jason, this is the spot. You keep on flying here and walking everywhere. This is the spot to base. Like I described earlier, it's a it's a it's it's the hub on the wheel. And it's a place of going and coming. And when we look in scripture and see the strategy of the Apostle Paul, he went to places where the roads were coming and going. So that I believe the idea is that he would preach like in Philippi. And then because of that road, those people who got saved were going to go back to wherever they came from and spread the message. And, uh, and that's, that's been our strategy right there.
0: And so because of that, you eventually relocated you and your family to Wipim, uh, and, and established the Wipim Baptist church. Uh, I guess that was around 2005. Is that right?
1: 2005. Yes,
0: sir. And I suppose if, if Daru was, was, um, if Daru was fairly primitive for, by, by our American standards, Whipping would, would be even more so totally. uh, being off the road system.
1: and Totally, so totally forth. primitive. Yeah. It was yeah. planned according to the government plans to become the new headquarters for the district. The district headquarters was supposed to move from Daru to Weeping, And I didn't know this when the Lord spoke to me in that November of 2002. I discovered it later. But, uh, these government offices and such were going to be moving. Houses were going to be established, and the Lord just really lined it up, and that was all going to be happening in 2005. And so we basically went in first with our sawmill and tractor and all this building material uh, from to, to transport from the river to Weeping, which is 40 kilometers, about 20 miles, uh, with tractor and trailer and all that stuff, and. Um, so we, we went up first. Here's an interesting side point here. The shipping company was being hired by the government to take all of their materials in, but they'd never been before. And so when I had approached them earlier on, they they said, well, we've got to make a reconnaissance trip up there, so we'll just take your stuff for free uh, just so we can go look at it, see see what it's yeah. like. I thought that was Amen. a great idea.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned you mentioned taking a sawmill in. So one of the things I did want to ask you about the about the sawmill. You um, you obtained a sawmill, and th- this is how you produce the the building materials to construct your home and uh, the the church building, some Sunday school buildings, and so forth. Um, was that uh, had that been done in that area before in Whipping?
1: Never, never. Uh, In the past, everything was basically carried, literally carried, carried in uh, to build. There's a there's a school building there. There was a school building and there was a health center and everything that came in was carried by hand. I mean, every every two by four, every nail packet, everything
0: and you've had occasion to to utilize that sawmill to to be a blessing to some other missionaries as well as to to the community locally there since it's it was really the only way to produce um, quality building materials
1: you're, you're exactly right in daru is very expensive to get building materials to the island and to weeping, it was going to be doubly so because you had to keep going and even track it truck and tractor it in so we got the idea of the sawmill uh and we raised money for that on our first furlough, and churches really responded well. Your church there, and in, in Tennessee, I believe, participated in that. And yeah, so we we brought this brought this sawmill in. It was going to be a win win, really, for for us and for the people. They've got trees surrounding them, but are useless because they're too big to do anything with. And so we basically would pay them for their trees, uh, and and you know we'd get we'd get. Lumber, we'd get timber to build with, and so the people are very happy, very excited that we we're there, and very accommodating. And it was just an ex- definitely an exciting time as we mill timber. Mind you, brother, I'm from San Diego, from the big city. Before I went to the mission field, I worked in an office on a computer. Uh, I knew nothing about sawmilling. Uh, I didn't even know how to use a chainsaw when I bought my first one. You know, I'm pulling on the string, pulling, 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 it wouldn't start. Finally, I asked someone, "How do you do this?" And oh lift that up. Oh, okay. That type of thing. Uh, <laughs> wow. and so it's all, it's all been a learning experience, uh, but to God be the glory.
0: Amen. Well, you, uh, in, in addition to, in addition to having to address the, the challenge of reliable and, and quality building materials and, and thereby bringing in a sawmill. You also faced another challenge, which, which gets to one of the, the main subjects that I wanted to speak with you about today, and that is the, the critical water shortages that you and the people there in Whipping faced. So tell us about how you dealt with that difficulty and how it led eventually to the formation of Baptist drillers.
1: Sure. So when we went to Whipping, uh we knew there, were, there was no government services, there was no power, water you know, any utilities type of thing. And so we brought two 3,000 gallon water tanks in to collect rainwater and trusting that that would be enough. And we, we found that, you know, during the rainy season, you have an abundance. I mean, the tanks are overflowing, but, and that, that really lasts about four months. And so for the rest, the next eight months, it will dwindle, dwindle, dwindle down to where it won't rain for about three months, no rain for three months. And everything gets dry and fires and all that. And our first year, we had no idea <laughs> what to expect. Uh, we thought, you know, boy, it's raining all this time. Certainly everything's going to be fine. But then we found that it wasn't. And we had to make a decision. Okay, are we going to flush that rainwater down the toilet? Or are we going to drain that wash machine every time? And we discovered we couldn't do that and we set up gray water systems where we could water our fruit trees and water our garden with the gray water. But sometimes we'd have to reuse our laundry water three or four times. Uh, you know, the only water we, we use or drink of course is rainwater. And so we, it was just a very critical time. And as a result of that, I began doing some research about uh, well drilling. Obviously I'd never done this before either, but, Uh, I think it was Benjamin Franklin said that necessity is the mother of all invention. And so we're going to find, need to find some solution to this problem. We can't quit. We must find a solution. And so I found this drilling machine in Opelika, Alabama, this company. And on furlough in 2009 or something like that, uh, I actually visited them. But I did not have enough money to purchase it uh, yet. And so just like that. Well, one day. Myself and another missionary in Papua New Guinea were sitting down here in San Diego and uh, talking about the different difficulties and how to how we've overcome them. And I described this well drilling machine and this exact same one from Opelika, Alabama. And he says, well, I've got one of those. And I asked him, well, how did it go? He says, "Oh, by the time I got it, I didn't need it anymore. He said it's still in the box. I'm like, Oh, please. How could you do that? And. Not knowing what he would charge, I said, well, would you sell it to me? And he's thinking about this. And if you knew this missionary, you'd understand this completely. He didn't, uh, you know, mean any ill will about it. You know, he just doesn't want to, he wants to find benefit somehow, not personal, but for his ministry. And and while he's thinking about it, his wife, you know, hit him on the shoulders. Hey, we can't sell that. We didn't pay for that. Uh, A church down in Houston, Texas. Uh, Shady Acres Baptist Church had actually purchased that drilling machine for them. And so the end result is he he gave it to me, and I just paid to ship it from where he was to where I am. And uh, we got that machine. I put it together. I looked at it. But I, it was just, I just didn't get it. It came with a little instruction manual, but <laughs> definitely it was lacking uh, some details. I'm oh, just looking at it. It sat there for months. I had uh, government officials that would come, come to Weeping, and they'd normally come see me and so forth. And they would see that machine, and of course they're interested because of this dry season. The any government workers that moved to to Weeping are going to need water as well. So they basically said, "Hey, Jason, if you ever figured it out, let us know. Uh, we'd like you to drill for us too." I had a an American pastor that was that came over with the building team to help us build a, another missionary house. And he says, Oh, Jason, you can learn anything on YouTube. And so that's ex- exactly what he did. He came back to the States. He YouTubed it, learned a few things, asked some people questions. And, and he called me back and says, Hey, Jason, we can do it.
0: <laughs> wow. How about
1: that? And, and that's how we got to drill our first water board. We, we drilled three, and we found water each time. The government was so excited. Of course, we were excited. It takes a lot of the pressure off, the stress off of living in, in the bush, and, and it's just been marvelous on the physical yeah. side.
0: When when you were when you were here at Cornerstone uh, earlier this year and showed a video of of one of the wells that you dug, I, I really was brought to tears. I I could not help but remember reading about John Peyton. Sinking a well on the island of Aniwa, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with that story. It is a powerful, powerful story, and I know that you have uh, that you've pursued this because of its benefits for ministry. Obviously, I mean, water is is something. It's it's life. a necessity of it's an absolute necessity of life. But tell how, how has well drilling opened ministry doors, and I, I especially want you to to take the time to tell us about the the. Katoa village story and and the door the Lord opened for you to to drill there.
1: So although Papua New Guinea is is a free nation, uh, religious freedom exists. You still can't go to a village and say, oh, "I'm just going to go in there and preach," or even visit them, pass out tracts and such. You need to get the leaders' permission. And we've had so we typically we would send a letter to a village and say, we'd like to come visit your village and uh, present the gospel to your people. And some, most will say, oh, good, come. But there were several who said, no, we don't want you, don't come here. And uh, that's the case of Kadawa Village. They said, we don't want you to come. Well, it's hard to tell a Baptist preacher, you can't come and preach the gospel. So there have been times when we've tried to go to those that village and other villages, and, and at one point, they actually chased us. Some men with knives, with big bush knives, you know, get out of here. And we we escaped to the dinghies and took off. They didn't want us. But since then, because of the well drilling, this village uh, is right on the coast, uh, uh, not far from Daru, but but on the coast, and they really suffer uh, from water shortage because they're so close to the to the ocean. Their groundwater is brackish. It's full of salt. And they really suffer. And so they wrote us a letter, Kautaua Village, and said, would you please come help us with this? And uh, I went and met with the village people and I said, listen, Baptist drillers would love to help you, but understand this, we are missionaries. We are preachers of the gospel. And they say, yeah, 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 yeah. That's okay. That's okay. Come, come, come. <laughs> so it all changed. It all changed, and that's the that's the way we found it happening. Uh, instead of us writing letters to villages, villages are now inviting us to come, and uh, what a thrill to be able to walk into a village not not with them looking at you with suspicion or or like that, but they actually welcome you in and be accommodating. And uh, what can we do to help you and that type of thing? It's been sure. wonderful
0: when you can could you walk our listeners through actually the 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 digging of that well there in Katawa village and the uh, the spectacle it was for the people and and the how rewarding it was when when it actually produced water
1: sure when i when i talk to a village group i always tell them water is never guaranteed water is a blessing that comes from god and we sometimes i'll describe the wells that abraham dug or or isaac dug and and sometimes there was nothing, and so I said we need to pray, and ask God for His favor. So we made plans and preparation. We hired uh, a barge or two to transport our our equipment to this village, and uh, they've never had a vehicle in their village before. And there, this village, Katawa village, you can Google it online, and uh, you know on Google Earth, and you can find it actually. Uh, the village is separated in two. There's those right exactly on the beach on the coast, but then there's uh, the main new village now is inside, but it's separated by a swamp. And so these people, in order to get our equipment there, they built a road. I mean they carried sand, no no equipment, just buckets. They carried sand and built up this road through the swamp like at least 150 yards, might be 200 yards uh, this road big enough, wide enough, strong enough to handle uh, our heavy equipment. And so when we arrived, uh, they they had this big, we call it a sing sing, a big dance. I mean, it was a big, big deal as they welcomed us uh, into the village with this equipment. I mean, people are uh, literally dancing, jumping up and down. And uh, I had my two small kids, David and Joy with me. Ha! One, uh, one, I think it was a woman, picked up my kids and ran off with them. And I'm like, whoa, wait, time, time, wait, stop, don't do that. <laughs> they were just so excited to, to welcome us into the village. And um, they had speeches and people had tears. The leadership had tears that, that we would come and they were praying that we'd find water. And so we set it up in an area and, and uh, we began drilling. And of course, people are standing and staring and it could take, it could take a while. So I just kind of told them to try to Minimize the the air expectations. Hey, it it may take a while. Just go ahead and go to the house and do what you got to do. It may take a couple days, and so we kept working and drilling and drilling and drilling. Finally, one day I said, "Hey guys, I think we've got it." And when I said that, you know, the the message spread like wildfire, and now you've got several hundred people that are surrounding us, watching us case this bore, and then we hooked up this big air compressor. We lift the air uh, the water out with air. To test it. And boy, water began to blow out of this thing and people started dancing. I mean, some people were crying. Some old people testified as we dedicated that bore that they'd never thought they'd see the day. And they just thank God that He blessed them. And this brother is the only village where we've drilled that we've got what you'd call a free flowing or an artesian bore. We have a pump for them, but they don't use the pump, it just flows all by itself. Even to this day, it's been several years now, to this day, it flows freely. And what a beautiful picture from Revelation 22, 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and whosoever will, let him drink of the water of life freely. What a wonderful testimony it's been been there. And we have an open door in that village. We teach in the public school there, which means we, from Daru, it's about a 20-minute dinghy ride. We get in a dinghy, go there on Tuesdays. And we get to teach in the school uh, religious instruction, and by God's grace, we're going to have a church there.
0: Amen. Amen. Amazing. The the I guess slogan or the motto of Baptist drillers, if I'm not mistaken, is for the furtherance of the gospel. And the uh, these humanitarian projects, if I can call them that, they they can be they can be so effective in opening doors and um, in softening hearts. But tackling these kind of projects, it comes with some it, there, there are challenges as well and and it can become a drain on time and resources that may otherwise be allocated toward the the main thing because the main That's thing right, is brother. not is not milling wood and it's not drilling wells, it's, really, it's preaching the right. gospel and it's teaching truth. so, what do you think is the relationship between gospel ministry and the improvement of living conditions among the people? And, and how, do you, how do you as a missionary try to balance these things?
1: It, that is a great struggle, brother. There have been times when I'm out in the hot sun and I'm drilling and I see two Mormon missionaries walk by with their materials. And I'm thinking, man, what am I doing here? But, you know, missions, brother, is it's a long-term investment. It's not just for today. It's for future generations. I I, I call myself a church planter. Uh, as a church planter, obviously we're wanting to win souls for Christ. But as a church planter, we're wanting to reach souls through generations. Do you know what uh, I'm saying? Sure. It's just sure. not. I just don't want to reach this man. I want I want this man's family to be able to be reached all the way to his grandkids and great grandkids. And that's the that's what a church will do. And so, with that, I I have to keep my mind that I'm investing here, I'm investing for the long haul. And how do we keep the balance of it? One, we put it on our on our slogan, our logo, for the furtherance of the gospel. Uh, Baptist drillers, uh, we we get contracts by the government. Sometimes we drill for free. Sometimes uh the government or whatever entity will pay us to drill and we've made it a principle that we tithe from the top of every project not from the bottom or what's left over or the profit no if a project is going to cost fifty thousand dollars to do we're going to tithe from the top and so that tithe obviously goes into the gospel ministry and uh, that's one way we keep the main thing the main thing we while we're while we're drilling Drilling can be real boring, brother. I mean, if you're stuck on hard rock, you're just you're just sitting there. It could be hours that you're just on that rock. And so our our men know that when things are grinding and they know normally normally the first few hours there's lots of movement going on, but then it's going to get to a place where we're just going to sit on this rock for some hours. And so our guys know that they can they take their gospel tracts out, they've got their bibles, and people are always watching us. And so then they move through the crowds and sit down with people. I've got pictures of our men leading people to Christ from people who are simply watching us. And so we try to keep the main thing the main thing. Whenever we do that, of course, is in the finance. We want to make sure that uh, this is not this is not a profiteering thing. This we have long range goals with this. So Baptist drillers, if I could uh, even expand on that. Uh, The dinghy, the the boats that we use to go out on outreach were purchased by Baptist drillers. The generator, big generators that run the church property and the radio station, Bible FM Western was purchased by Baptist drillers. Uh, You know, whenever we're doing this Bible distribution ministry where we have open doors into every village, Baptist drillers pays for the fuel of all that. And so if it wasn't for the vision of Baptist drillers, we would still to this day be greatly hindered, and so one of the biggest things to put it in a nutshell, to keep the main thing the main thing, is we make sure that that our mo- motto and motivation is for the furtherance of the gospel.
0: That that is a blessing, I and that's that's. Uh... It's God's using that in in multiple ways, as you point out. It's meeting a need that is that is real for the people and uh, that's pressing for the people. At the same time, that it's self sustaining and it's and it's uh, re, it's producing some resources that are going back into the spiritual. Element of the ministry, which is why you're there getting the gospel out, be it through, be it through the itinerant evangelism that requires taking a, taking a ding- a dinghy down, you know, downstream or, or up right. the coast to evangelize okay. or getting a, a new tower up for Bible FM and exactly. getting the, getting the gospel across the radio airwaves. And um, it's uh, another, uh, another element of this. And I think that you've already, I think you've already spoken to it, but um There are government contracts involved. If, if you were not doing this on the ground, eventually somebody else would be. Now that's not, that's not necessarily a reason to do anything just because somebody else would be, but the fact that you can meet a need and, and they're able to pay for the, the services that you provide, um, that is entirely appropriate it's the, the idea is not to one one of the challenges sometimes i think with with these humanitarian efforts is if if we're not careful it will produce a, a, an unhealthy sense of entitlement among the people that we're trying to help and uh, it, generating that sense of entitlement is is not helpful and to be able to work closely with the government protects your interests for operating there long term. Um, and it, they, have, they have the resources to put into meeting some of these needs. So uh, you, as you put it earlier, it's a, it's a win-win. Really, really exciting to see it's it's the Lord's it's the Lord's doing and um, that it that the need developed something that was something that was the critical water water shortages, the effect that it had on your family, the effect that it had on your church family, the effect that it had on the community there. in we and you going to see if you could meet the need that you and your family and your church family had and then for the doors to swing open the Lord's doing to swing those doors open to work hand in hand with the government to meet needs all over that Western province. Uh, just really, it's, it's really exciting. It's not like you, it's not like you bought a, uh, bought a drilling machine and said, and went around to churches and said, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to New Guinea and, and, uh, try drilling water bores. No, you, you went to wind souls, plant churches, train men, and then the Lord showed you a need that you could that you could communicate with.
1: One quick testimony by a teacher at the Weeping Primary School. After we had drilled there and uh, got water and and put in a solar pump and tanks and all this stuff, he said, "Pastor, he says you brought us the gospel years ago, and that helped us spiritually." He says today, and he started crying. And our people are not all—they're not really criers. All right, they're rugged people. But he got teary-eyed and said, but pastor, today you brought us water. Now, I didn't bring them water, but you know what I'm saying. And uh, because they would have to walk long distance and men don't normally carry the water. The women carry the water. They'll carry it on their heads, carry it on their backs in big containers. And uh, so he just got real teary eyed and said, today you took care of a physical problem. Amen. We now have yeah. water. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and the, the uh, it's interesting. I, I I just recalled when when you and I uh met in person the first time some years ago in Alabama you actually had a a brother with you that that is a government official um and this has secured uh this this has this has brought about some favor with some people in some high places it, which is certainly in in it that's that's worked for the furtherance of the gospel as well
1: yes sir the governor knows who we are i uh, just talking with some brothers in New Guinea yesterday, and uh, they're having some big government meetings on the island right now, and uh, Baptist drillers as part of their discussion, and so the governor knows who we are, our our member of parliament, our uh, MP member of parliament, uh, and we have a good testimony with them. They know that we're not for profit. Uh, they know that we're there for the people. I've been in New Guinea now 20 years, and uh, I'm not there for the short time. The testimony is clear that uh, we love our people and we want to meet their spiritual need, but also understand there is a physical side that they have need as well. And this is one area that we can also help in.
0: Well, you, you made mention just a moment ago, and I did want to, before we wind up the conversation, I wanted to ask you also about the radio effort. That's another tool that you've used with good effect to get the word of God out in the Western province. So why, why, and i think you you described uh, earlier the how sparsely uh, populated this region is how widely spread out these villages are which sort of compounds the helpfulness of a of of a medium like radio in that kind of terrain so, uh, what's been the progress so far in bringing Bible FM to your prov- to your province? And and I, I happen to know you've got uh, an even bigger vision for this e- for this effort in the near future. So, tell us about that.
1: We do, and we're working on expanding our radio ministry. Uh, we've done research, and we've discovered that because our area is so flat, I mean, it's uh, Dar Island, of course, is. I think the highest point is 16 meters. So that's what, 30 feet. And 300 miles away, the elevation is 50 feet, you know. So in order for us to reach out and reach, the the goal is really to reach about 60 miles away was our original goal. That's where we have churches at in a 60 mile radius. Uh, We'd have to build this thousand foot tower because of the curvature of the earth. So, we, we're lending we're bending more towards doing this satellite downlink and here's where Baptist drillers even comes in everywhere every village we drill in we get a portion of land of course to drill and we get to fence it off we put solar pumps in and with these solar pumps uh, solar the dream and the vision is to be able to uh, uh, put up a transmitter right there down satellite downlink from our radio station there in Daru and uh, be able to reach out to the surrounding communities using uh, using satellite. Isn't that amazing? We're talking about in the jungles of New Guinea having satellite radio and uh, be able to reach our people. Because our people are so spread out, uh, you know, it's hard to get to visit them. And every Christian needs Christian fellowship. And through radio waves, we can do that. I mean, they can tune in and hear amazing Bible preaching, they can hear great programs, they can hear great music, and their spirit and their soul can be, uh, can be energized and revived and, and be challenged to be soul winners themselves. And I mean, the radio ministry is only limited by the signal. It's not limited by how in an impact they can have. But if we can get the signal to them, our people will listen, our people will grow, and the gospel will, will go radio is
0: amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and I really, really believe that that there are certain places around the world where I think that radio is particularly effective. And, uh, I think New Guinea would be a place like that. And just the, the potential for Bible FM in, in, especially given the, the terrain as it is, that is really exciting. And I, I mean, I, it pro- probably you couldn't have foreseen how Baptist drillers would would fit hand-in-hand hand with the expansion of Bible FM, but it, it, once again, it's just the Lord's doing.
1: <laughs> it's the Lord's doing. Back in 2014, Baptist drillers paid for half of the of the setup. Our church, the the church itself paid for the other half, but Baptist drillers put a big chunk of money in. And if we hadn't, you know, if Baptist drillers wasn't there... I don't know how any of these things would be happening. We'd be having to go to, I guess, all the American churches and say, "Please help us." Uh, but instead, we can we can work and labor in country, and uh, and see the Lord provide in this way.
0: Well, it is a uh, it is a joy to look and see how the how the Lord has been at work over the last twenty years as you've labored in New Guinea in the Western Province and Brother Russell, I sure appreciate you what you're what you're doing for the Lord there in New Guinea, how the Lord's using you uh, to to win souls, plant churches, uh, produce good Christian content that goes all over the Western Province by radio airwaves and uh, now drilling wells and the fantastic doors that have been opened unto you through Baptist Drillers. So thanks so much, Brother Russell, for the the conversation and for what you're doing for the Lord there in the western province of New Guinea. I appreciate you sitting down with us today. Thank
1: you for giving me the chance to share these thoughts and hopefully encourage others to get involved in missions and dream big and let God uh, take control, move you this way, that way, which way, and I had no idea that that I had no idea that I'd be milling timber or drilling wells, or any of these things, but the Lord knew, and He's made a way.
0: There are a number of really helpful takeaways from this conversation with Brother Jason Russell. I appreciate the method of training and discipleship that Brother Russell described, employing in those early days of going in and out of whipping, and which he continues to employ even with the work of Baptist drillers. I also noticed that this model of discipleship, if we could call it that, was something that he was encouraged to adopt from a veteran missionary, Brother Ted Mullins. And of course, this is after Brother Russell had been provoked and encouraged by the ministry of missionary John Gray. I think these are great examples of discipleship begetting discipleship. Perhaps you caught some of the examples of God's provision for the Russells' ministry over the years, from housing to shipping to a drilling machine to the expertise to learn how to use the drilling machine. And this provision involved national brethren, American churches, and fellow missionaries. Among the most valuable observations to be gleaned from this interview has to do with the manner in which Baptist drillers developed— As Brother Russell commented at the close of our conversation, he had no idea that he would be milling wood or drilling water bores when he went to Papua New Guinea. That's because he didn't go to New Guinea to mill wood and drill wells. He went to win souls and disciple believers and plant churches. And yet, in meeting the needs of his family and his church family, these other pursuits became necessary. In other words, the humanitarian projects were the outgrowth of real ministry and they continued to be subservient to those Great Commission purposes. When Jesus fed the multitudes, he did so in the course of his staple teaching and preaching ministry. The miraculous works of Christ were never exclusively humanitarian in nature. Very often, his mighty works served to confirm his messianic credentials or teach his followers some important spiritual lesson. But when the miraculous works no longer served the spiritual mission... They were discontinued. Whenever Baptist drillers or any other physical needs-based outreach ceases to be for the furtherance of the gospel, its usefulness and missions will have ended. Its current usefulness, Baptist drillers that is, for Great Commission purposes, is easy to see in its interrelatedness to the other evangelistic and discipleship efforts the Russells have taken on purchasing dinghies for the purpose of ministry, fuel for the distribution of Bibles in public schools, generators that power radio signals that edify saints in difficult to reach locations, not to mention the first and obvious benefit of well-drilling, opening communities to gospel outreach that might otherwise be closed to its propagation. And on top of all this, the physical needs-based outreach has secured the favor of government officials, which has its own set of benefits to long-term stable ministry in the province. As Brother Russell put it, it's a win-win situation. Thanks again for tuning in to today's Great Commission Conversation. I do hope that you've enjoyed the interview. You can subscribe to this program wherever you receive your podcasts. And if it's been a blessing to you, please feel free to invite others to tune in. I always welcome your feedback about this or any of our programs. You can contact me, Brother Lee, by email at greatcommissionconversations at gmail.com. Until next time, let's do what we can to preach the gospel in the regions beyond.